welcome to church again. It's fantastic to be here. I just have to tell you, I wore this shirt very deliberately tonight. Bronte gave it to me at some point last year. Uh, it says, I've got your back. Uh, and I did that because I very much felt this week that you guys have had my back, that you, you folks have had my back, and, uh, and I very much appreciate that. Um, and doing what we've done and, and going on the 7.30 report and all that kind of stuff uh, is our way of trying to say, we've got your back. Uh, and we want to advocate for people that have been through the stuff that all of us pretty much have been through in different ways um, and let people know that despite what trauma they might have experienced or what um, marginalisation people might have experienced, that our God is a God of welcome uh, and that every human person is made in the image of God and is welcome in the family of God. That's what we want to declare and that's something... Uh, a message that we want to get out to people, that there are safe places and places of refuge, uh, and Jesus himself is our refuge, and we want to declare that. Um, but we want to say thank you for, for the way that you have held us in the last few days uh, and had our back. We really, we really appreciate that. I'm going to jump straight into it. Thanks, Brenda, for reading that passage for us tonight. It's one of my favorite passages for quite a few years now, Bronte and I have talked about having uh, a John 4, John 8 paradigm about Jesus. This kind of understanding that, um, our, particularly when we think about issues of dispute in the church, kind of our paradigm or the pattern that we use to think about Jesus is based a lot on John 4 and John 8. Because in both of those passages, you've got uh, people, women in particular in those passages, who are under judgment from religious people who are excluded from religious communities, uh, who are at times being treated appallingly. And Jesus does the thing that no one expects him to do. And that is to walk towards those people and to love them. Now that is my savior. That is the Jesus that I know. And so this passage is incredibly core to, to really my way of understanding who Jesus is. And so I'm pretty excited to be, to be able to share about that tonight. Some of the stuff that I'm going to share, uh, you might already know, uh, and some of it might be new to you. That's, that's cool. I'm going to do something that I used to do a fair bit when I taught overseas, because uh, I taught a lot in places that were cultures that are very different to my own, where I would be going in to teach um, leadership stuff or ministry stuff or things like that. Um, and I might know a little bit about that stuff, but I did not know about the culture that I was going into. And I'm very, very aware that it is not my job to apply biblical principles uh, to someone else's culture or to tell them what to do with that in their own life. And so what I would often do was, um, you know, teach some principles about ministry or, or teach a message from, from the Bible, um, you know, here are some principles that are coming out in this story. And then I would say, I'm going to share some ways in which this is challenging for me in my culture, and I would love to hear some of the ways that it might be challenging to you. Uh, and I learned just some incredible things in, in, by doing that um, and listening to what other people had to teach me. And so I'd actually like to do that tonight. So I'm just dropping that in your head now. Um, you don't have to, of course. Uh, you don't have to in this context. You might want to in the pub later. You might want to share it with just a mate afterwards. But, but I would love to hear if there are particular ways in which some of these principles are helpful to you or challenging to you. Uh, and I'm going to share one, one or two of them at the end. So this story starts off with Jesus. Uh, he just had a really interesting conversation with uh, Nicodemus that is pretty famous. Uh, and then he'd been baptizing a bunch of people. But he decides to go from Judea, 
back up to Galilee. Now, Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, that kind of area, um, in the gospel, that's a very hostile place for Jesus. Whereas Galilee, the way that it's presented, is actually a really safe place. Like, that is a real place of refuge for him. It's where a lot of his mates are from. Um, He's often stayed at Peter's place in Galilee. That is a real, like, that's a safe zone for him. And so Jesus decides, it's time to go back to Galilee for a bit. And John tells us in this reading that Jesus um, says to the disciples, okay, we're going to go through Samaria. We have to go through Samaria, it says. Jesus said to the disciples, uh, sorry, it says, we have to go through Samaria. Now, here's the thing about that phrase. Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. Samaria was actually uh, like a disputed territory, very similar to what that area is now at our time in history as well. Uh, The Samaritans were a group of people who were marginalized and excluded in Israelite society at the time. Samaria is smack bang in the middle of the the uh, Israelite territory um, at the time of Jesus. But it's an area that is inhabited by people who who are looked down upon, who are seen as religiously and culturally inferior to the Jewish people. And so most Jewish people would avoid them, did not want to encounter them at all. They were seen to be unclean people uh, to the extent that a Jewish person would not share any kind of like dishes or eating utensils or drinking utensils with them. So there's no dinner parties happening between these groups of people because you couldn't use the plates or the cutlery that had been supplied to you. Like that's the level of um, exclusion and um, prejudice that existed between these groups of people. Uh, It's a religious community that uh, had a different way of worshipping to the way that the Jewish people at the time understood worship. So the Jews at the time saw that the, the main place of worship or the focus of worship was the temple in Jerusalem. Whereas the Samaritans believed that the right place and the main place of worship is a place called Mount Gerizim. And they actually had a temple on Mount Gerizim and said that is the right place to worship. The Jewish people had uh, what we know as the Old Testament, or the, the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, which are, I was about to say the 66 books, the 39 books uh, that we know as the Old Testament that were the, the Scriptures to the Jewish people. The Samaritans only held that the first five books, what, we, what is sometimes called the Torah or the books of the law, they said that's Scripture. None of, these, none of the prophets, none of this other stuff, just the Torah. Sometimes they did include the book of Joshua in that uh, because basically they were saying our authority is Moses. He is the man. He is the one that had the encounter with God, that revealed God to us, and all this other stuff is just fluff that's been added added on that never should have been. Joshua was recognized as kind of like the rightful heir of Moses. So the book of Joshua was kind of okay. But they basically had different ideas about what is the sacred scripture, how worship should be conducted, where worship should be conducted, all of these things. Uh, And for all of those reasons, Jewish people tried to avoid Samaria and the Samaritan people as much as they possibly could. The problem is that the quickest route from Judea to Galilee is straight up through Samaria, the, the route that Jesus takes on this occasion. So, you know, it kind of seemed kind of logical. Yeah, Jesus had to go there, so of course he's going to go through Samaria. The challenge is that we know from this gospel and the other gospels that there were other times when Jesus was taking this trip that he did not go through Sychar. He didn't go through this town. He didn't take that route. 
The other thing that's interesting is there's a suggestion that just before this happens, Jesus was in the Jordan Valley, like he'd been baptizing down in the river. And there's a suggestion that he was in the Jordan Valley. Now, if that is the case, the quickest route for him would have actually been to continue up through the Jordan Valley and then take a left at Bethshan and get into Galilee that way. Whatever is the case, it seems like it wasn't so much that Jesus had to, like there's no other way, every other road is closed, as there's something going on that Jesus wanted to, needed to be in this place. And some of the phrasing that John uses uh, is used elsewhere in his gospel to indicate that sense of kind of divine mission, the, the nudging or the leading of the Spirit of God. So yes, it was the shortest way, it was the most direct route, but Jesus didn't have to go this way as such, and other times he took another route. So that's the Samaritan thing. The other thing is, this chick is, well, she's a chick, it's a woman. And this is an incredibly patriarchal society. Uh, there's a general prejudice in Jewish society against women across the board at this point in time. Uh, some of you will know that women were not allowed to give evidence in court because they were um, believed to be too unreliable. I think Joel alluded to that on Easter Sunday as well. Uh, there was also a prejudice or a bias against women learning about theology or learning about Torah because, again, they're not intellectually up to it uh, and they can't be relied upon to really understand what God's doing. So a woman should never be trusted with theological matters, shouldn't be allowed to dispute about God. You need to leave that to the blokes. They know what they're doing. They've got the, the uh, intellectual kudos. So there's a cultural bias here. There's a gender bias happening here. And then there's a moral bias that's happening. Because this uh, is not just a Samaritan woman. This is a Samaritan woman with a very dubious sexual history. This is not a woman who has just married one man and been faithful that, to that man for her whole life. This is a woman that has had multiple sexual partners and not all of them have been in a marriage relationship. So in the culture at the time, again, this is just, like, this woman is out there. She's out there for the Samaritans, for a Jewish man even more. She is as far out on the fringes as you can go. The, like, every warning sign is flashing. Stay away from this woman, lest you be led astray. A good Jewish man, a righteous and holy, holy Jewish man, would not get anywhere near this woman. And yet... And yet, Jesus, number one, deliberately decides to take this route. Number two, deliberately decides to stay at the well when all, his others, all of his other mates go into town. And then, when he sees this woman approaching the well, he asks her for a drink. Now, not because there's a lack of water, but because Jesus doesn't have a drinking implement or anything to access the water with. So now he's saying, I want to share your drinking utensils. He has crossed every moral, religious, and cultural boundary in this story. He has broken every rule of purity. His behavior to a holy Jewish man at the time is absolutely offensive. And yet, and yet, there's another thing that's going on with Jesus in this story where 
you've got this dispute happening between the Jews and the Samaritans about the right way to worship and who are the spiritual teachers and patriarchs that we should elevate and hold up as, as uh, the true teachers, the, tr- the, the ones that we should trust. But there's a comparison that's going on here as well between Jesus and all of that religious tradition and all of that religious authority. The point here is made that this well that they're at, it's Jacob's well. And you've got to go right back into Genesis to find how Jacob went through all of this trouble just to try to get water for his flocks and his family back in the book of Genesis. But this well has been around since that time. It's a well that was dug by one of the patriarchs of Israel, whether you're Jewish or Samaritan. This is like the man, your man Jacob, the guy who's the original Israel, the one whose name was changed. This guy dug this well. And there's a thing going on in this story where for all of that tradition and for all of that um, amazing kind of hierarchy and importance, Jesus is redirecting things away from the practices that people know, the right way to do things, the right place to do things, the right person to trust, and going, actually, this is about me. This isn't about your tradition. This isn't about your temple. This isn't about your teachers. This isn't about your holy book. I am the source of living water. I am the source of spiritual truth. And there's a, so there's a comparison going on right throughout um, most of the Gospels, actually, where Jesus is the one who is greater than Jacob. Jesus is the one who's greater than Moses. Jesus is the one who is David's greater son. Jesus is the one who's greater than the temple. Jesus is the one who gives a salvation that's greater than the exodus, that's greater than the return from exile. Jesus is greater than every historical or cultural tradition that you have. Jesus is greater than all of these. And yet, this same Jesus is the one who has broken every single rule of what is appropriate and right and pure and holy. That's this Jesus. There's a sense in this story that Jesus makes it clear to this woman that he knows her history. Most commentators think that the reason why this woman is at the well in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day, carrying the massive water jugs and all that kind of thing, is because of her, uh, her kind of sexual track record, if you will. That means that she's shunned by the other women and the other members of the community. Because most people come to get their water first thing in the morning or last thing in the evening, during the cool of the day, when you're not in the heat of the sun, and it's an absolute social occasion. Everyone hangs out chatting. It's like going to the pub after church. Everyone hangs out chatting and talking, and it's awesome. This woman doesn't go then. Why? Because she's tired of the exclusion. She's tired of being on the outer. She's tired of no one wanting to have a conversation with her. She's tired of all the side-eye that she gets every time she turns up where other people from her town are hanging out. Jesus makes it clear that he knows the reasons for her rejection. He lets her know that. But he doesn't let her know that in order to condemn her. Because if that was the case, then as soon as he said, this is your sexual history, you're a mess, lady, he would start telling her what was wrong and how to fix it. But there is no point in this story where Jesus says, you need to go back to your first husband and remarry him because that's your, first, like, that's your real marriage in the eyes of God. I've heard pastors give that advice. 
Jesus doesn't say to this woman, the guy that you're living with right now, that's not a real marriage, that's just a facto. You need to go and get the legal piece of paper. You need to go and marry him properly because that's what's going to make it holy in the eyes of God. And I've heard pastors give that advice too because these are the rules that we follow to make sure we're pure and holy. But Jesus doesn't do that. He says, yeah, I know your history. And then he gets straight into a theological discussion with her because she starts that. She instigates a theological discussion about the right way to worship and what that looks like and all that kind of stuff. And Jesus, again, instead of shutting her down and going, excuse me, um, woman, like no theology from you. I have the testosterone to prove that I am a theological authority. He doesn't do that. He engages in this conversation with her. So at every point he shows that he knows her and she is still welcome and she is still valid. She can engage with him. She's not too impure for him. She's not too womanly for him. She's not too anything for him. He is right there for her because he has very deliberately chosen to put himself in a place that every other man that he knows would avoid. And Jesus has put himself right there. And he is doing everything to signal to her that she is welcome and she is loved. See, the first thing that Jesus does is love her. The first thing that Jesus does is accept her. Because all of her questions, whether the Jewish way or the Samaritan way is the right way, of, right way to worship, the reality is they're completely irrelevant because neither community would have welcomed her. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what's the answers to her theological question because she was on the outside of every religious community. But she wasn't on the outside with Jesus. First, he loves her. He loves her. He doesn't ignore the fact that she's had a painful past and a series uh, of painful relationships. He doesn't, but he doesn't speak to her in a judgmental way. Uh, I don't know about you, but certainly there have been many times in my life when I've been in a situation with a group of people or in conversation with someone, and in the back of my head, this little phrase is playing, what if they knew? What if they knew? How would they respond to me then? See, Jesus shows her, I know, and I'm still walking towards you. I know, and I still love you. I know, and I'm still telling you, you are welcome to worship. You are not on the outside with me. He knows, and he loves. And so instead of judging her, instead of telling her all the reasons why she will always be unworthy, Jesus welcomes her and invites her to worship in spirit and in truth. You know, I think the crux of this passage in a lot of ways is the need for us to live lives in the pattern of Jesus, in the image of Jesus, where we are led by the Spirit of God and willing to go into places that are outside of our control. And I think there's a lot of us who perhaps have grown up in traditions or been in situations where we've been told uh, not to trust our instinct, not to trust what we maybe sense God is, is saying to us, not to trust what we feel in our gut to be true because you can't trust yourself. You can trust your religious leaders. You can trust their interpretation of the book. You can trust tradition. You can trust dogma. You can trust all of these things. What you can't trust, we're in trouble, what you can't trust is yourself. 
Oh, the irony. <laughs> and yet, in this passage, in this story, Jesus has broken every rule and every tradition to do the thing that is right, to do the thing that the Father is leading him to do, that the Spirit is nudging him to do. And I think too often we've been taught not to do that or we're afraid to do what we know and believe is right because we're afraid of the reaction that we're going to get from other people. You know, this week, Bronte and I have been absolutely blown away by hundreds and hundreds of messages of support from all over the world, by some of the last people that we would expect to get in contact and say, we love you, we're with you. It's amazing. We're going to be honest and say we've had some pretty appalling messages as well. Some, yeah. But I'm incredibly grateful for the messages of support. I'm going to confess to you, though, that one of the things that struck me at one point was some of the people who haven't got in touch to share their support, that, what, that I know love me and trust me and know that I love Jesus. But I suspect the reason why they haven't got in touch, knowing and I know that they know what's going on, uh, is because they're afraid of that association with me. If they express support for me, then they're uh, expressing support for my hashtag gay agenda. Uh, my agenda for tonight is to be in church with you guys and then go to the pub. Uh, it's a deadly agenda. But there's that fear of association. But I know that I've had that too. Yeah? I don't know about you, maybe, maybe there's been times in your life when you've been held back, constrained from doing what is right, from loving the ones that Jesus loves, because you don't want to get tainted by association. That is challenging to me. There's a point in this passage in the middle of a bit that sort of comes out of left food where Jesus appears to be off his food, sorry, out of left field, where Jesus appears to have been off his, off his food for a while. And he says this phrase to the disciples, I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Now, this is a, an ex-missionary speaking, and I have heard that phrase many, many times. The fields are ripe for harvest. And it's always about these far-off people out there that we have to go to and travel miles to get to. But the ironic thing about this passage and the actual context of what is happening here is the harvest is not people that are way out there that we have to cross oceans and get in planes to try and connect to. The harvest that is plentiful, that is ready to be harvested, is actually all the people who are right here, right in front of us, that we are avoiding because we think that they're dirty, because we think that they don't deserve Jesus, because they think, we think that they will never, ever understand the truth, or for whatever reason, they just won't get it, and so we just avoid them. And some of us have been those people. When Jesus says, look around you, the harvest is plentiful, the fields are ripe for harvest, He's talking about the people right in front of us that we have written off as undeserving. And Jesus is saying, these are my people. 
Open your eyes. Open your eyes and see the ones that are avoiding the crowd because they are so tired of rejection. The number of people who have got in, in touch with us this week who are too scared to go to church anymore. Open our eyes. The fields are ripe for the harvest. These are people that Jesus loves. And yet for whatever reason, because they're not like us, because they have a different religion, because they have the wrong sexual standards, because they have a set of rules that we don't agree with or not enough rules or whatever the case is, we've made up our minds to avoid people. And in this situation, like people had to really try hard to avoid Samaritans because they were literally right there in the middle of Judea. They had to try hard to avoid them, but they did. They did. But then there's Jesus, our beautiful Jesus, who is led by the Spirit right into the middle of disputed territory to the most impure, morally, racially, genderly, unclean person that you could find. And Jesus meets her exactly where she is at and invites her to worship. And uh, as Steph hinted at before, this woman becomes the first evangelist in the gospel. Often the women at the empty tomb that go back and tell the, the disciples about Jesus, sometimes they're referred to as the first evangelist. Well, they're the first Jewish evangelist. But this Samaritan, morally ambiguous woman is actually the first person in the whole of the New Testament to declare the good news about Jesus Christ. And she declares the good news this way. He knows me and he loves me. And this group of people that wanted nothing to do with Jesus are suddenly interested because of the testimony of this woman. Here are some of the things that are challenging me about this story. One of the first things that challenges me is that uh, I need to experience and I need to allow other people to experience the love and the grace of Jesus without getting caught up in technicalities. Who's welcome? Who's not welcome? What's the right way to do this? What's the wrong way to do this? What's who's crossed the line and can't come back? I think we just need to present Jesus and invite people to, to, to love and be loved by Jesus. I think I grew up with an understanding that um, knowing God and loving God is all about uh, knowing the Bible really well having a technical understanding of the Bible and accumulating Bible knowledge. Um, and I don't think that's, it's a bad thing to know about the Bible and to know that well, but I, I don't think that's the point. I think the point is the person of Jesus, who is more important than whatever version of the Bible you think is great, that is more important than whatever denomination or religious tradition you think is the one that is more important than whether you stand up or sit down or roll over to, to worship God, whatever, Jesus is actually the most important person. That's what really matters. And so, as uncomfortable as it sounds to be encouraging one another to enter into disputed territory, to approach people and places and traditions that maybe we've thought of as really outside the pale. As uncomfortable as that might sound, I genuinely believe this is a normal 
Christian life. There's a place in 1 Peter chapter 2, I think it's about verse 21, where it says that um, the call for our lives, the mission of our lives, is to walk in the pattern of Jesus, in the footsteps of Jesus. And when you look into the, con- into the context of that, it's, it's talking about a pattern, almost like a, a pattern for a, like a, a tapestry or a crochet, like put this stitch here, put this stitch there. It's the idea that if you follow the pattern that Jesus has set, you will end up with a beautiful masterpiece. A beautiful work of art that looks like the life of Jesus. I want to share one last thing that's challenging me about this passage. One of the, uh, one of the many messages I got this week was from a guy who got in touch on Twitter. And I don't use Twitter a lot at all, so I think um, my Twitter followers have quadrupled this week because now there are four. Um, yeah. Uh, But this guy got in contact and just said to me, "Uh, I want to just show my support for you. I want to tell you how much I appreciated you telling your story and tell you that I support you and I've got your back. And then he named a religious tradition and said, I grew up in this particular religious tradition um, and I've experienced the same kind of exclusion and abuse and marginalisation that you have in in that tradition. And I'm so glad that you've spoken up about this. And I was challenged by that because the way that I was brought up, the way that he worships Jesus is the wrong way. He's got it wrong. He's got the wrong version of the Bible. He's got the wrong place where he was. He's got got it wrong. His version of Jesus, his version, it's wrong. And I read this story and I go, what the heck, Karen? What the heck? It's about Jesus. It's about being like Jesus. By just loving people regardless and recognizing that some of them are already loving Jesus, sometimes a heck of a lot better than me. But I thought that because they weren't doing it in the pattern of Karen, they were doing it wrong. It's not about my pattern, it's about Jesus' pattern. So it's a little bit about what's challenging me about this story. I'm going to turn off the mic and stop the recording. And just give you a second to think about, you do not have to share. And I know some of you hate awkward silences, and some of you don't. It's just a reality. Uh, And so this is where we make a little bit of room for some of the ones that don't hate it. But I'm...